0: Chapter 32 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Last Days Dorothy told me one day in 1935 that Gilbert had written the beginning of an autobiography some years before, but had laid it aside. She had, she said, a superstitious feeling about urging him to get on with it, as though the survey of his life and the end of his life would somehow be tied together. I urged her to get over this feeling because of all the book would mean to the world after this talk she got out the manuscript and laid it on gilbert's desk he read what he had written and immediately said about dictating the rest of the book early in nineteen thirty six he told a group of friends that the book was finished one of them said nunc dimittis and edward Macdonald, who was present commented the words were chilling though he seemed to be in fairly good health but certainly he was tired the book showed no sign of fatigue high-spirited and intensely amusing it seemed to promise many more for into almost old age he had carried the imagination and energy in which as a very young man we saw his resemblance to the youthful dickens reviewing his life with the thread of thanksgiving that had been his clue throughout he looked back on it as indefensibly happy and it was in truth a rich and full human existence yet father vincent who knew him intimately speaks of him in these last years as heartbroken by public events as suffering with the pains of creation he was crucified to his thought like saint thomas he was never away from his thought the fellow friar had to care for thomas to feed him sicut nutris because of his absorption in his thought thus father vincent saw francis cherishing gilbert both mind and body a friend protesting vehemently against the phrase "crucified" to his thought says it was his lifelong beatitude to observe and ponder and conclude of his own so-called paradoxes gilbert was wont to maintain that it was god not he who made them and here we have surely one of the paradoxes of human life intense vitality joy in living vigor of creative thought brought to their owners immense happiness and acute suffering is it not a part of the most fundamental of all antinomies the greatness and the littleness of man created for eternity and prisoned in time we have no perfect joy in this world and the reaching upward and outward of the mind is at once the keenest joy and the fiercest pain rather as we talk of growing pains only gilbert loved to grow so much that he would not think of the pain you must never pity me, he said to Lady Fisher, and all through his life he was saying and meaning, you must never pity me. But while he was writing the autobiography and giving thanks for his life, his last months were shadowed by trials, especially heavy for a man of his imagination and temperament. For now more than ever his thought was not allowed to concentrate on those realities where the joy of contemplation overpowers the pain of growth he loved italy even more than france he says in one letter yet he could not but condemn the invasion of abyssinia the shadow of the spanish war loomed on the horizon and behind it a darker shadow in his political thinking chesterton was haunted by the present war then too while public controversy did not trouble him at all he hated any breach of the peace within the ranks of his own small army. The fights among the staff of the paper about distributism had been nothing as compared with those about Abyssinia. There are leading articles taking one line and letters in the cockpit in violent opposition. Morris reckitt writes in As It Happened, In the last autumn of his life I wrote to him privately in distress at the line which the Weekly was taking on Abyssinia. In saying that I felt that I ought to leave the board, as I was so much out of sympathy with this. I received this reply, from which I have deleted only some personal references. Top Meadow Beaconsfield, 19th September, 1935 My dear Mr. Morris Wreckett, I do hope you will forgive me for the delay in answering your most important letter involving as it does tragic dooms of separation which i hope need not be fulfilled i should like to ask you to defer your decision at least until you have seen the next week's number of the paper in which i expand further the argument i have used in the current number and bring it i think rather nearer to your natural and justifiable point of view between ourselves and without prejudice to anybody i do think myself that there ought to have been a more definite condemnation of the attack on abyssinia the whole thing happened while i was having a holiday very shortly the moral danger to me is the rehabilitation of capitalism in spite of the slump which will certainly take the form of a hypocritical patriotism and glorification of england at the expense of italy or anybody else for the moment, I only want you to understand that this is the mountainous peril that towers in my own mind. Yours always, G.K. Chesterton. Three months later, in G.K.'s Weekly, he wrote about the whole matter in an article in which he treated the question as largely one of proportion. Not enough was being said in England of her own or the League's position about Japan's attack on China too much in proportion about italy in abyssinia if the league of nations really were an impartial judicial authority and if what is about as probable i were one of the judges and if the abyssinian case were brought before me i should decide instantly against italy i have again and again in this place stated in the strongest words the particular case against italy it was against italy and abyssinia as he had been against england and south africa but i should not be bound to rejoice at the prussians riding into paris because it might prevent the british riding into pretoria tragic dooms of separation on public issues were not the only trouble with g k s weekly the staff were also engaged in violent personal quarries about which gilbert was asked to take sides was even bitterly reproached by one for supposedly favouring another it would be hard to-day to say what it was all about but two of the contestants have told me since that had they had the least notion how ill he was getting they would have died rather than so distress him for it was a real and very deep distress it may be remembered that miss dunham noted how gilbert used to make a mysterious sign in the air as he. Lit his cigar that sign says dorothy was the sign of the cross long ago he had written of human life as something not gray and drab but shot through with strong and even violent colors that took the patterns of the cross he saw the cross signed by god on the trees as their branches spread to right and left he saw it signed by man as he shaped a paling or a doorpost the habit grew upon him of making it constantly in the air with his match as he lit a cigar over a cup of coffee as he entered a room he would make on the door the sign of our redemption no we must never pity him even when his life was pressed upon by that sign which stands for joy through pain those nearest to him grew anxious quite early in nineteen thirty six he was overtired and working with the weary insistence that overfatigue can bring THE REMEDY SO OFTEN SUCCESSFUL OF A TRIP TO THE CONTINENT WAS TRIED. THEY WENT TO LORD'S AND LASSEO, AND HE SEEMED BETTER AND SANG A GOOD DEAL IN HIS TUNELESS VOICE AS DOROTHY DROVE THEM THROUGH THE LANES OF FRANCE. FROM Liceu HE WROTE A PENCILLED LETTER, LONG AND ALMOST ILLEGIBLE, UNDER THE SHADOW OF THE SHRINE, TRYING TO RECONCILE THE disputants WITH HIMSELF AND WITH ONE ANOTHER. THE SUMMER WAS COLD AND BLEAK, AND THE TOUR WAS ALL TOO SHORT home again his mind seemed not to grip as well as usual and he began to fall asleep during his long hours of work the doctor was called and thought very seriously of the state of his heart that heart which many years ago another doctor had called too small for his enormous frame the thought of a chesterton whose heart was too small presents a paradox in its own best manner to edward Macdonald, who had missed a message that he was too ill to be visited gilbert talked in his old fashion and promised a poem he had just thought of for the paper on st martin of tours the point is that he was a true distributionist he gave half his cloak to the beggar soon after this he fell into a sort of reverie from which awakening he said the issue is now quite clear it is between light and darkness, and everyone must choose his side. Francis and he had both thought his recovery in 1916 was a miracle. I dare not, said Francis, to pray for another miracle. Monsignor Smith anointed him, and then Father Vincent arrived, in response to a message from Francis which he thought meant she wanted him to see Gilbert for the last time taken to the sick-room he sang over the dying man the salve regina this hymn to our lady is sung in the dominican order over every dying friar and it was surely fitting for the biographer of st thomas and the ardent suppliant of our lady salve regina mata misericordiae vita dolcedo et spes nostra salve jesum benedictum fructum ventris tu nobis post hoc exilium ostende gilbert's pen lay on the table beside his bed and father vincent picked it up and kissed it it was june fourteenth nineteen thirty six the sunday within the octave of corpus christi the same feast as his reception into the church fourteen years earlier The introit for that day's Mass was printed on his memorial card, so that, as Father Ignatius Rice noted with a smile, even his memorial card had a joke about his size. The Lord became my protector, and he brought me forth into a large place. He saved me because he was well pleased with me. I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my firmament, and my refuge, and my deliverer. To these words from the Mass, Francis added Walter de la Mer's tribute. Knight of the Holy Ghost, he goes his way. Wisdom is motley, truth his loving jest. The mills of Satan keep his lance in play. Pity and innocence, his heart at rest. The day of the funeral was one of blazing sunshine. One of your days, Gilbert would have said to Francis. Gray days were his when nature's colors he said were brightest against her more somber background sunny days were hers for she loved a blue blazing sky the little church near the railway was filled to overflowing by his friends from london from all over england from france even and from america all beaconsfield wanted to honor him so the funeral procession instead of taking the direct route passed through the old town where he had so often sat in the barber chair and chatted with his fellow citizens. At Top Meadow we gathered to talk. Frances, a few of us saw for a little while in her own room. With that utter self-forgetfulness that was hers, she said to her sister-in-law, It was so much worse for you. You had Cecil for such a short time. Later Monsignor Knox preached in Westminster Cathedral to a crowd far vaster, both Frances and Cardinal Hinsley received telegrams from Cardinal Pacelli, now Pope Pius XII. To Cardinal Hinsley he cabled, Holy Father, deeply grieved death, Mr. Gilbert Keith Chesterton, devoted son, Holy Church, gifted defender of the Catholic faith. His Holiness offers paternal sympathy, people of England, assures prayers, dear departed, bestows apostolic benediction this telegram was read to the vast crowd in the cathedral and found an echo in the hearts of his fellow-countrymen hugh kingsmill wrote to cyril clemens my friend hesketh pearson was staying with me when i read of chesterton's death i told him of it through the bathroom door and he sent up a hollow groan which must have echoed that morning all over england it was reason that the pope offered his sympathy not to catholics alone but to all the people of England. To the policeman who sat at the funeral, we'd all have been there if we could have got off duty. It was a grand man. To the man at the Times office who broke in on the announcement of his death, good God, that isn't our Chesterton, is it? The barber who had to leave his customer unshaved that he might talk to Edward MacDonald, to all of us his friends on whom the loss lay almost unbearably heavy to those for whom his presence would have pierced and lightened even the dark shadow of the war to all the people of england once more a pope had bestowed upon an englishman the title defender of the faith the first man to receive it had been henry the eighth and the words are still engraved on the coins of england the secular press would not print the telegram in full because it bestowed upon a subject a royal title after Gilbert's death, Frances tried to take up life again. She visited her cousins in Germany, a university professor and his English wife, who were undergoing the persecution of the swastika. She was deeply moved by their suffering and the peril they stood in. Home again, she surrounded herself more than ever with children, taking a catechism class and encouraging her small scholars to come to Top Meadow, where her garden also helped her toward a difficult peace and serenity, rendered harder by the struggle with ill health. Soon we began to realize that the physical weakness, which all her courage could not overcome, was more than merely her old malady. What did Frances die of, Bernard Shaw wrote to me, was it of widowhood? In fact, it was a most painful cancer, heroically endured, she was cared for by Dorothy, and presently by the nuns of the Bon Secours. Her friends visit her as they were allowed. Father Vincent MacNab, after a talk of almost an hour, noted how never once did she speak of herself or of her suffering. Her concerns were for Dorothy, for the church, and for Gilbert's memory, Eric Gill's monument, the biography, the permanence of his own writing she survived him little more than two years. Near the end, from the face of a dying woman shrunken with pain, we could still see those great heavenly eyes that seemed to make the truth at the heart of things almost too terribly simple and naked for the sons of flesh. End of chapter 32 Last Days